Well, good morning, friends. Man, another beautiful morning to gather. I was in the back and I was like, you got to preach three times a day, so hold it together. Don't sing too loud. And then in 30 seconds, I was like, oh, worship the king. I was just like, <laughs> couldn't hold it back. That was so wonderful. Thank you, worship team. But I'm so thankful for this place to sing with you guys. I'm thankful for the beautiful spaces that we have to gather. I recognize you over there, Auditorium 2. I recognize you online people. I know we still have three to 400 family groups meeting together and seeing this at different times. Love to have that technology, but I'm mostly thankful for the people for this wonderful community. Is anybody else thankful? Say I'm thankful. All right. I'm thankful for the many musicians who serve here and for the tech team who give it their time. I'm thankful for those who make coffee. Aren't we thankful for them? And those who minister to little ones and students, those who are greeting us warmly at the doors. Is anybody thankful? Say, I'm thankful. thankful. That's right. I'm thankful for the freedom to gather. I'm thankful for the scriptures in which God has revealed himself and his story for faithful teachers who minister to us and they equip us with their wisdom and explanation of the scriptures. Are you thankful? Say, we're thankful. thankful. It's Thanksgiving in March, everybody. Let's have turkey and, and dressing for lunch today. So my name is Matt. I'm usually leading music of some kind. And I know that the first couple minutes of a teacher's message, you're usually evaluating all the things about me. And that makes us feel great. It really does. So. I know you're checking out my shoes and my outfit. Did Matt get new glasses? Do I like those new glasses? I'm not so sure. I wonder how Matt's cholesterol is doing. I know. <laughs> it's none your business. Uh, well, I tried to wear decent shoes and dark jeans like Charlie. You just always got great shoes on. And then I stayed in the dark shirt genre for Jim. And then I knew Jason would be honored if I wore Under Armour but my closet isn't full of Under Armour because we all can't be doing as good as Jason is doing. So my closet is like a hodgepodge of Kirkland brand and like maybe a random golf brand. I have one Under Armour shirt that Jason gave me because it was too big for him. So uh, I might even have some Duckhead left over. Remember a Duckhead brand? So. Anyway, I had our comms department make me something that will help me with this, so I'm just gonna throw this on real quick. This is my, my new Under Armour magnet <laughs> that I, I can just put it on anything and pow, it becomes an Under Armour shirt. And you can really put it on anything, so pow, you can have Under Armour mug. You can have pow, Under Armour guitar. Didn't know they made those. And even POW, Under Armour Prayer Collective. Look at that. So take that, Jason. I bet you don't have one of those, do you? No, you don't. Well, we are in week three of a series called Royalty. And this spring, we are tackling the life of Saul, the first king of Israel. And of course, a lot of Samuel, the prophet, the kingmaker. And in the first eight chapters of 1 Samuel, we have covered some grim territory so far. Israel is at a crossroads. They have taken part of the promised land, but they have not completely obeyed God and driven everyone out. And consequently, they've begun, begun to worship idols and the false gods of the nations around them. Even their spiritual leaders, their priests are corrupt. 
stealing from the people, taking whatever they want. Our one bright spot in the story so far is Samuel and the story of his life. And I I love the, the picture of him as a small child communing with God, learning how to listen to him, attentive to God. Then as he grows up, bringing the Lord's word to Israel. But we have seen tragic stories of war and confusion. Israel lost the Ark of the Covenant for seven months. Old fat Eli falls over and breaks his neck. The people are, they're either ignorant or they're disobedient to God's laws. Um, Charlie said the words bloody hemorrhoids like 10 times last week. (laughs) It's been a scary scene so far. So eventually the nation decides that God as their supreme ruler isn't quite cutting it. And they demand an earthly king. And I think they acted like true children of Israel. They act more like toddlers of Israel as they demand a king like everybody else. We want a king. And I think God was very patient with them. He took the time to explain, well, if if I give you this, this king is going to be a taker. He is going to take your sons and your daughters and your fields. And they give us a king. God says, he's going to take your crops. He's going to take your money. You're going to have to pay taxes. And he's going to cause you a lot of pain. And in the tantrum, they're still like, king. So these are solemn words that we saw last week as God tells Samuel, they have rejected me from being king over them. And truly, this could be seen as the start of their national decline. Much of the Old Testament story to this point has been about God choosing, selecting a people. He's bringing them into his place under his rule. That's what we've been reading in the CBR from Genesis, Exodus. Now we're in Numbers. Feel free to join us. Jump in there. And sadly, now the kings of man will start to lead the people away from God. Sure, there's going to be some glorious years. There's going to be some prosperity as we get into David and Solomon, probably the height of Israel's glory, but eventually these human leaders are going to lead them back out of the land for their disobedience, and it's going to lead them out of relationship with the best monarch that they ever had. So now we come to 1 Samuel 9, and we are about to meet our second main character. If this was a movie, it would be about eight minutes in. Uh, we've, We've already seen like an epic battle scene, and we see that Israel needs some help, and they demand an earthly king. And then something very different. The scene would cut to a beautiful farm, uh, lush landscape. And I think the soundtrack would be like, doo, 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 doo. and the scene would pan onto an incredibly handsome young man. <laughs> and out of the blue, we're thinking, that's our king. They've been talking about kings. That's the guy right there. And then there's a record scratch. And something very unexpected, his dad is going, hey, Saul, go find the donkeys. That's what we're headed into this morning. It's a, the movie is a comedy, drama, historical thriller. So let's pick it up in chapter nine. This is a fascinating, fun story that honestly, I didn't remember even reading before I started studying for this message. So I, I, I bet that brings you a lot of comfort. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I did some study. So we're gonna read from the NLT version with some commentary along the way. Here we go, chapter nine. There was a wealthy, influential man named Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, 
First of all, the dad's name was Kish. So just a little side, this is how my brain works. I hope he milked that for dad jokes like his whole life long. Like if he was playing with his kids, he's like, it's the Kish of death, like that. Or if he was fighting with his wife, he's like, let's Kish and make up, let's not be angry. <laughs> or if his friends were using bad language, he's like, do you kiss your mother with that mouth? You see what I'm saying? Okay, his name was Kish. Verse two, his son Saul was the most handsome man in Israel head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. I promise I won't stop every verse, guys, because it'll take a long time. But what a statement. Objectively, the most handsome. He was the Brad Pitt of Israel, the Michael B. Jordan. He was the Fabio of Israel, whatever your generation is. And he was taller than everyone. The ESV says, uh, an interesting phrase, from the shoulders upward, he was taller. So I like to picture him with like a really big giraffe neck. I don't know what that means, but all right, let's move it along. Quit distracting me. Here we go. Uh, chapter nine, verse three. One day, Kish's donkeys strayed away, and he told Saul, uh, take a servant with you and go look for the donkeys. So Saul took one of the servants and traveled through the hill country of Ephraim, the land of Shalashah, the Shalim area, and the entire land of Benjamin, but they couldn't find the donkeys anywhere. You may be wondering, what's the big deal? Uh, but think of the donkeys as like the power of the farm. All right, it's like their tractors and their pickups have gone missing, and that's, that's a big deal. They need them to function well. And the donkeys were also a sign of their wealth. So you really wanted to keep track of them. You had to go find them. Finally, they entered the region of Zeph. Now it's a Dr. Seuss story. And Saul said to his servant, Oh, let's go home. By now, my father will be more worried about us than about the donkeys. This is like two or three days later. But the servant said, I just thought of something. There is a man of God who lives here in this town, and he is held in high honor by all the people because everything he says comes true. Let's go find him. Perhaps he can tell us which way to go. But we don't have anything to offer him, Saul replied. Even our food is gone and we don't have a thing to give him. Uh, well, the servant said, I have one small silver piece. We can at least offer it to the man of God and see what happens. Verse 10, all right, Saul agreed, let's try it. These definitely sound like teenagers, don't they? It's like, let's go find the most famous, famous prophet in Israel. We'll give him a quarter and we'll see if he knows where my dad's donkeys are. This is their plan. So they started into the town where the man of God lived. Verse 11, as they were climbing the hill to the town, they met some young women coming out to draw water. So Saul and his servant asked, is the seer here today? Is the prophet here? Uh, yes, they replied, stay right on this road. He is at the town gates. Very helpful young ladies. Would they have been so helpful to an uglier man? We will never know. So Saul says, thank you, ladies. And they enter the town, and as they pass through the gates, Samuel was coming out toward them up to the place of worship. Now, this is a turning point here in the story. Up till now, we're just reading the details of a normal little fun day, right? A little donkey hunt. And we get a glimpse behind the curtain as we come to verse 15 to see that this day is not so normal at all. Now, the Lord had told Samuel the previous day, about this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him to be the leader of my people, Israel. 
and he will rescue them from the Philistines, for I have looked down on my people in mercy and have heard their cry. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said, again, that's the man I told you about. He will rule my people. So this is it. This is God's working. He's leading. He's guiding and moving behind the scenes of this normal day. But we'll come back to that later. Back to the story. Just then Saul approached Samuel at the gateway and he said, "Uh, can you tell me where the seer's house is? Not knowing who it was. Samuel said, you found him. I am the prophet. Go up to the place of worship ahead of me. We will eat there together. And in the morning, I'll tell you what you want to know and send you on your way. And don't worry about those donkeys that were lost three days ago, for they have been found. And I am here to tell you that you and your family are the focus of all Israel's hopes. Whoa. Saul replied, but I'm only from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe in Israel, and my family is the least important of all the families of that tribe. Why are you talking like this to me? Paraphrasing the rest of the chapter for time, the young men are brought into a special meal and placed at the head of the table with the finest food. They're eating with the most famous prophet in all of Israel, Samuel. Then they stay the night at Samuel's house. They get up early the next morning. They're walking down the road. And Samuel says, hey, send your servant up the road a bit. I want to talk at you. So chapter 10, verse 1, picking back up. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil And he poured it over Saul's head. He kissed Saul and said, I am doing this because the Lord has appointed you to be the ruler over Israel, his special possession. And then there is a section of some very specific signs of confirmation. Samuel tells Saul, hey, you're going to be heading back and you're going to meet two men at this exact spot, and they're going to say this exact thing to you. And then you're going to go to this certain tree. You're going to be in another group of men. They're going to have all these certain provisions. They're going to give you two loaves of bread, all right? And then if that doesn't, like, confirm it for you, the third sign is there's going to be a band of prophets. It's literally a band. They have these instruments with them. They're going to be playing and singing. You're going to meet them, and then you are going to prophesy The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you. Very cool stuff. This is not a normal Tuesday. So as Saul turned and started to leave, God gave him a new heart. And all Samuel's signs were fulfilled that day. How cool it must have been for those young men to see, hey, there's the two guys, hey, two loaves of bread. Oh, there's the, like to see it exactly come to to pass. When Saul and his servant arrived at Gibeah, they saw the group of prophets coming toward them And then the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and he too began to prophesy. When Saul had finished prophesying, he went up to the place of worship. Uh, Where have you been? Saul's uncle asked him and his servant. We were looking for the donkeys, Saul replied, uh, but we couldn't find them. So we went to Samuel to ask him where they were. Oh, and what did he say, his uncle asked. He told us the donkeys had already been found, Saul replied. But Saul didn't tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingdom. Now we know for sure that he was a teenager. All that happened to him, three-day donkey hunt, 
met a famous prophet, guest of honor at a huge meal, was told he'd be king. Olive oil poured all over his head. Crazy confirmation signs. The spirit came upon him. He was prophesying. And then he got home and his uncle said, hey, how was your day? And he said, pretty good. Donkey's already found. That's exactly what a teenage boy would do, right? This is the fun, interesting word of God for the people of God. So that's the story for this week. And in a, mo- in a moment, we'll stick with the outline of uh, what does that teach us about God and how could that point us to Jesus? But first, a little side note. Since this is the first time we meet Saul, our main character, what's our first impression? Like, what do we learn about Saul from this story? Well, the first statement about him, he's physically attractive. The man is what? He knows it, everybody knows it. Keep that in mind for later. When Saul gets the famous line spoken to him, hey, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. There might be deficiencies in Saul's character, maybe traced to relying on his extreme handsomeness throughout his life. What else? He is described as pretty helpful. He seems glad to uh, journey about, to do what his dad asked of him. He's looking for some donkeys for three days, right? He seems very respectful of Samuel and others. So I hope right off the bat, you're not getting villain vibe from, from Saul. He's a pretty good young man. Perhaps we get a glimpse into one of his flaws that will keep showing up later and that Saul usually thought he had a better plan than God. I know I joked about it earlier, but why did why, did, why didn't Saul take the golden opportunity to tell his uncle about all that had happened? Samuel was famous. He, he was well-known throughout the land. His uncle heard, you spent some time with Samuel? Tell me, tell me about that. What happened? And Saul just keeps it about the donkeys for some reason. We'll see in the next story that he is reluctant He's, he's a little bit afraid to accept this new calling. And he'll actually be found hiding in the suitcases when his name is called out as king. It definitely wasn't his plan for his life. And when he was clearly chosen, anointed, confirmed by these amazing outlandish signs, he still seems like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do this. I think... My way for my life might be better. So just keep those few things in mind. We just get a little bit of background about Saul as we move forward. But more importantly this week, what does this story tell us about God? I have this structured as two declarations about God and then some simple responses for us in light of those things. So the first one is this. God is sovereign over all things. So praise him for his providence. God is sovereign over all things. So praise him for his providence. I think we know about sovereignty. Talk about that a lot here. God rules over all things. I love the phrase that Charlie uses a lot, from galaxies to governments. He's in control. His will can't be avoided or thwarted. We see in the story what feels like Uh, A bunch of people just making choices and they're searching for donkeys and they're uh, having feasts. But verse 15 is the intrusion to the story. It's the perspective. Now Yahweh uncovered Samuel's ear the day before and he said, hey, 
I will send. And then when Samuel saw the young man, God said, hey, that's the man. Look, he will govern my people. I heard some great thoughts from Chris Dolson. He's a pastor at at Black Hawk Church. In a message on this passage, he reminds us of these two things. People are free, but God is sovereign. The donkeys are certainly free, right? They're, They're having a great day. They're out roaming around. Saul, he seems free. He's deciding, all right, let's go here. Let's check over here. Let's go there. Uh, He's about to give up. His friend freely says, "Ah, let's try one more thing. Let's go see the prophet. I've heard about him. You really get no hint in the story that these are robots that are programmed to go here and there. Yet verse 15 clearly shows us in the middle of these choices, God is sovereign. The day before, God said, I'm going to send you that man. All these small human stories taking place in God's big story. So how freedom and sovereignty work together is always left in tension in the Bible. I know that drives some of us crazy, but it's never neatly resolved for us. We can't comprehend this mystery. It's beyond our understanding because We can't understand how God relates to time. If you've figured out how God has relating to time, then you please, please let us know so we can settle this. But until then, please accept both of those things. People are free, but God is sovereign. It reminds me of Proverbs 16, 9, which we should all know, a great little proverb. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The NLT says, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. So if we have the word sovereign, then why do we need the nuance of God's providence? What does that mean? Praise him for his providence. What is that? Well, it does carry the sense of God's providing for our needs, but that's not all of it. Uh, Great commentary on 1 Samuel we've been using by Dale Ralph Davis, the man with Uh, three first names. Dale Ralph Davis says this about providence. Providence is the wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way that Yahweh has of ruling his world and sustaining his people and his doing it frequently over, under, around, through, or in spite of the common stuff of our lives or even the bias of our wills. I know some of us need to read things a couple times to think about them, so I'm going to give you 20 seconds of dead air. I want you to read that again to yourself and really think about that wonderful definition of providence. Another definition from the Heidelberg Catechism. It was composed in the city of Heidelberg, uh, Germany in 1563. You may not even be as familiar with catechism. What in the world is that? Well, that's a tool that you can use to teach young people. It's been in the church for hundreds of years. A tool for teaching young people. It was also a guide for preaching, maybe in the country churches where the, the clergy wasn't as trained and a form of of confessional unity among the people. 
So question 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism teaches this. Question, what is the providence of God? Answer, the almighty and ever-present power of God, by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. That can speak to us in whatever season of life we're journeying through. See, there's really no such thing as chance or luck or serendipity or or good fortune. There's only the providence of God in your life in all things. So my exhortation in responding to that truth is just to look back on his providence and praise him. Marvel at the stories that he has written that you couldn't have imagined or dreamed up. Recognize it when you see it and honor the one who made it come to pass. Don't just think, man, that was a, that was a stroke of good luck. Those things came together. Now praise him for his providence. In my own life, I've taken some time this week to, uh, to look back to see uh, a young boy who started piano lessons at age five because his mom forced him to. Thanks, mom. Uh, I look back and see a teenager who was in youth group right at a time in history when worship music was, was changing and flourishing in the church and was in these worship bands, really enjoying it. I see a, a young man in college who got to travel on some music teams and be in 400 different local churches over his college and just catch a a vision for how important the local church is and the worship of God in it. To starting at this church in my early 20s and being mentored and equipped and given experience and intersecting with so many wonderful musicians and teachers and leaders and people, all those threads of leadership and music through my life that God has woven together to provide me with a ministry of leading worship. It's God's providence, it's not dumb luck. And I praise him. And you have a story to rejoice in as well. If you take the time to look back, to acknowledge it. God doesn't just work on these things for the kings, for the leaders of the church. No, the the book of Acts is full of his sovereignty and his providence in the life of every believer. And it's true of you as well. Praise him for his providence. If you're married and you look at your spouse through the eyes of divine providence, I bet there's a thousand different stories of how God joined you together. That's a solid reminder of the truth of marriage, right? From Matthew 16 and Mark 10. We hear it in most wedding ceremonies. What God has joined together, let not man separate. See, you didn't just happen to both take astronomy 201 because history 704 was full, right? You didn't just happen to walk into that shop and meet that cute person at the register. You didn't just happen to come across that dating profile on onlychristianapplefarmers.com. God is the ultimate matchmaker and his providence 
He has joined you together. So whatever your story and whatever your season of marriage, I hope you'll go back to that confidence that God was working to join you together and praise him for that providence. This isn't just true of us personally, but it extends to our organizations, our churches, our governments, our leaders. Daniel chapter two, God raises up kings. He removes kings. God raises up presidents. He removes presidents. I was recalling the journey of Southside Baptist Fellowship Greenville this week and how God has led us through the years. And one particular story came to mind at a crucial time in our growth. Uh, I called Charlie this week to get the details right again and to ask him if I could share it. He said no, but I'm going to anyway. He did. No, he said yes. The year was approximately 2004. So almost 20 years ago. Pastor Charlie Boyd was pretty frustrated in ministry. Uh, having a large Christian school and a large church on the same property, it just seemed to kind of hamstring uh, both of them. And there was even talks of starting a new Christian high school in the area. And Charlie just wasn't too sure about that direction. So he was driving along in his Jeep, of course, waving at all the other Jeep people, feeling better than us, you know. And as he got to the light at Highway 14 in Woodruff, so you imagine up here by the McDonald's, he decided, I'm turning left. I don't want to go back to the office today. I'm frustrated. And he decided to turn left and he drove this way. And he decided as he got closer to this building, which used to be Brookwood Church, I'm going into Brookwood Church. My friend, uh, Pastor Perry is in there and we see each other at coffee shops once in a while and we encourage each other. And he just so happened to walk right into Brookwood's church office and Perry just so happened to be free right at the moment and he walked in there and he laid out his frustrations. And Perry said, well, uh, why don't you just buy this building? And threw out a, a possible price even. And Charlie was like, that's a good one. And he left. He wasn't sure if Perry was like serious or not. Well, really, could that happen? Perry called him the next week and said, hey, have you, uh, have you talked to your elders about that? Yeah, let's get, this, let's get this deal going. Charlie was like, okay, this is a real thing. A few months later, our church had a significant fire down at the Southside Christian School property. And we came down here for, to meet and we saw this building and how it could work. Skipping a lot of steps. Eventually we did buy this building. Obviously we're sitting here today and God has blessed us here to grow and to reach more people. And he has blessed Southside Christian School on Highway 14. And that one little conversation where Charlie frustratedly turned left opened huge doors for a lot of people. Did Charlie freely turn left? Yeah, I think he did. Was God obviously guiding Brookwood Church, Fellowship Greenville, and Southside Christian School in ways we could never imagine? Absolutely. And that's just one moment for one leader in one organization, one city, and one country. When you zoom out and just see the greatness and the wisdom of God and his providence to guide our lives as they intersect with each other. I've been overwhelmed at it often this week. 
Praise him for his providence. Second thing we learn about God, and this one's going to be a lot shorter. Like if this message was a flight, you'd now be putting your seats back up, okay? You're, you're, uh, the landing gear's not quite down yet, but we're getting close. So, Second point is this. God is always working, so be patient with his plan. God is always working, so be patient with his plan. I can hear many of you that you go, that, that providence thing sounds great, but I am in a difficult season of waiting or suffering or discouragement. And you feel like you've been looking for the donkeys, like not just for three days, but maybe three months, three years. You're not sure if there are even any donkeys. They went home and no one told you. I get that. I get that. Not every day is illuminated with perspective and seeing God's guiding hand, drawing pieces of your life together so that it makes some sense to us. Remember what we see in this story, it was unknown to the people in this story. Saul was just out legitimately looking for donkeys, but God was working him towards kingship. Hope Blanton and Christine Gordon in their study on 1 Samuel say this. Isn't this the way that God still sometimes leads his people? We wander through our days simply doing what must be done, cooking, cleaning, shopping, driving children places, sleeping, teaching. And suddenly we find ourselves in the middle of a situation clearly arranged by God. I just want to reassure you that he is still working. He is a compassionate God who hears Hannah praying at the altar desperate for a child. He hears you as you pour out your heart to him. He is full of mercy and compassion to forgive Israel's foolish sins. Generation after generation, he moves to renew them, to draw them back. He does that for you. He forgives your sin and foolishness and always pursues you. He was rejected as Israel's king, but in chapter nine, it seems like he turns over a fresh new page in the journal and starts again for Israel in his compassion. I don't read any mention of an anger or a grudge against them, but he tells Samuel, I'm gonna save my people because their cry has come to me. I'm going to give them the best possible chance moving forward with an earthly king. How many times has he done that for us in our lives? So trust that God is working when you can't see it. His ways are not our ways. His timetable is usually not even close to the timetable we wish it was. And let that trust stir up patience and steadfastness in our lives. Back to the Heidelberg Catechism, many of the statements of what a doctrine was, like the definition of it, would be followed by, uh, like, so what? What, Why should we study that? What good is that going to do in our lives? So here's question 28 that comes right after what we looked at earlier. Question 28 says, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? Answer, If if we believe it deeply, then these things can be true. We can be patient 
when things go against us. Thankful when things go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing in creation will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in God's hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. Soak that in. When we deeply accept that God is sovereign over all things, that his providence extends to every corner of our days, then the Holy Spirit can infuse us with patience, can well up thankfulness and obedience and confidence in our lives. See, we now know that nothing can separate us from the love of God because of Christ Jesus, because of King Jesus. And in in this story, we see it's a God who's been rejected by his people, but as Davis says in his commentary, Israel's stupidity cannot wither Yahweh's compassion. Was God upset by Israel's idolatry and asking for a king? Yes. But was he still moved by their cries for help, for mercy, for deliverance? Yes, he was. Saul is given out of compassion for God's people. God has heard them and given someone to save. God hears and acts. And he has given someone to save us from more than just oppressive Philistines, but from the oppressors of sin and death and the grave. And this king would come to us humble and riding on a donkey on his way to a cross for us. I see the providence of God in this story in that it was through the earthly line of kings, through the line of David, that the true king would arrive, the lion of the tribe of Judah. It would have been better for Israel to keep God as the ruler, yet God is wise and sovereign enough and so beyond our ways that he can move through that in human history for the appearance of the Messiah. And this king is a giver, not a taker. He welcomes you into his throne room and seats you at the place of honor only because of his generosity. So I invite you to praise him when you see glimmers of his providence in your life. And when you're looking for those donkeys, be patient with his plan. He's still working. Would you pray with me, please? I invite you just to take 30 seconds and maybe one of those points resonates with you more than the other today. You might be at a a very thankful, joyful place to see God's sovereignty and providence in an era of your life. And I just invite you to honor him. Just thank him. And I realize that many of you may be in a place of just needing to be patient with his plan because you're not sure what is going on right now. So I invite you just to pray for a deeper trust, a deeper patience, a deeper belief that he is sovereign, he's active, he's working.
Father, Son, and Spirit, we are in awe of you today. How wise and how sovereign your ways. How kind your heart toward your people. Would you please give us patience when life is hard? Gratitude when life is good. And through all these seasons, a steadfast peace because nothing can separate us from your love. Pray these things in your name, King Jesus. Amen.